الحمد للہ الحمد للہ الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا ان هدانا الله واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم يريد الله يريدون ليطفئوا نور الله بأفواههم والله متم نوره ولو كره الكافرون هو الذي أرسل رسوله بالهدى ودين الحق ليظهره على الدين كله ولو كره المشركون Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims. There is a position out there that violence directed against Muslims is justified. That the negative stereotyping of Muslims especially in those countries where Muslims are in a minority, that that negative stereotyping is deserved. And those who hold this position, they go on to say that this is because the criticism of Islam as a violent, aggressive and intolerant religion is legitimate. But as Muslims, we have to reiterate the fact that this kind of negative stereotyping 
has been an accompanying feature of Islam ever since it emerged out of the Arabian Peninsula 14 centuries ago. At the time of Allah's Prophet alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam towards the end of his mission when Islam began to emerge as a regional power in that part of the world Byzantium began to mobilize its puppet armies in the south of Palestine and in Jordan in what is now Jordan and this mobilization on the part of Byzantium ultimately led to the Battle of Mu'tah and this was the first encounter between Islam and imperialism and even back at that time over 14 centuries ago imperialism was enshrouded in a veneer of Christianity And much of the same thing is happening today, but we will get back to that in just a few moments. And so from that point on, from the Battle of Mukta until today, the relation between the Christian West and Islam has been one of confrontation. But not because of their Christianity because of their imperialism. When the Ottoman Empire collapsed about a century ago, it was welcomed with great jubilation in the Christian West. And the Christian West used this as an opportunity to try and crush the Islamic identity, the Islamic spirit, the Islamic culture and the Islamic unity in a sense to try to crush the Islamic deen altogether and they tried to do this for two reasons the first was the treasure trove of riches in the Muslim East and the north of Africa and the second more sinister reason was the expulsion of all Jews from Europe and their resettlement in the Holy Land of Palestine to act as a permanent impediment to peace in the region not because the Muslims were opposed to Jews but because it was well known that the inclusivism of Islam was opposed to the exclusivism of Bani Israel and that the only way that Bani Israel could, is, could survive in the Holy Land was by ensuring that all of its neighbors were in a permanent state of war. At the time that the Ottoman Empire faded from the scene, the major imperialist power in the world was the British Empire. 
And even at that time, though it was a hundred years ago, in and around the time that World War I took place, evangelical Protestants were powerfully associated with, with the imperial and political objectives of the British Empire. And in that vein, certain of the more prominent evangelicals in the British Empire at the time became very powerful imperialist symbols. Among them was a person by the name of David Livingstone. He was a famous, he was a famous British cartographer who went and charted all of East Africa for the British Empire. Another one was General Charles Gordon who invaded the Sudan and he got his comeuppance when he was killed by the Mahdi of Sudan. And a third one was General Henry Havelock who put down the British, the, the Indian mutiny of, 1897, uh, of 1857 in the subcontinent of India, in the city of Lucknow. All of these people, they were evangelical preachers and before engaging in the day's activities, they would spend themselves immersed in the literal meanings of the Bible. And so in a sense, they walked in to the majority Muslim world with the Bible in one hand and with the sword of imperialism in the other hand. And so insofar as the British involvement with the majority Muslim world, there was a biblical dimension to it. And over a hundred years ago, once again, right around the time that the Ottoman Sultanate was being dismembered, there was no place on earth that was more concerned about the resettlement of Jews in the Holy Land than the people of the British Empire. And this inclination of theirs dates back to the 17th century rule of Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan reading of the Bible, meaning his literalist interpretation of the Bible, led him to repatriate Jews back into the British, into the British Isles, into the United Kingdom. For the Jews had been forbidden entry into the British Isles since the year 1290. And for a period of 400 years, they were not permitted to settle in the United Kingdom. And then from the 17th century, we fast forward to the 19th century. And at that time, there were two more British prime ministers who echoed the same themes of resettling Jews in the Holy Land. The first of these was Benjamin Disraeli who wrote a book about it and the second of these was Viscount Palmerston who felt that a British client state in the Muslim East 
would be geostrategically advantageous for the British Empire. And then we fast forward another hundred years to the 20th century, in and around the time of World War I, where a third British Prime Minister who ruled from 1916 to 1922 by the name of David Lloyd George, who echoed the same themes of resettling Jews in the Holy Land of Palestine. He said in his own autobiography that he was raised by an uncle who was an evangelical preacher and he was brought up in a school that taught more about the history of Jews than about the history of his own people. And so he was key to providing political and military support for the British 1917 invasion of the Holy Land of Palestine. And it was during his prime ministership that the British general Allenby stepped on the grave of Salahuddin and said, now the final crusades have come to an end. And so during this time, British and French imperialism actually went out and romanticized the Crusades. Despite the fact that their own historians said that this was a dark chapter in the history of Europe. And so they came out with books such as the Crescent and the Cross. And they came out with paintings that were entitled The Entry of the Crusades into Constantinople. And so by the year 1918, right around the conclusion of World War I, there were over a million British troops in the majority Muslim world. And we may ask at this point, does this have an echo into the situation today? But by 1922, just four years later, The British Empire, which was now stretching in that part of the world from South Africa all the way to Burma, had overreached. And because they had these million troops who were stationed in the majority Muslim world, their economy was no longer able to sustain that kind of occupation and the British Empire began to slowly collapse. And so by the end of World War II, the British Empire was all but gone. But then these themes, the evangelical themes, the crusading themes, the end times prophecies, they got new life at the end of the Cold War. Again, by the end of the Reagan administration, right around the late 1980s. And brothers and sisters, this is significant. Because the United States on its own part was a country that was created by literal Protestant Christians. And so in a sense, the United States' own view of itself 
is that it is more morally self-assured than the British Empire. And certainly we recognize that it is more evangelical than the British Empire. And this could not be reflected more than in the fact that the one person who was more informed or perhaps it could be said that there was no one in the United States who was more informed of the 1917 British invasion of the Holy Land than George W. Bush himself. For before the 2003 invasion of Iraq, he would immerse himself every morning in a book of sermons by a person of the name of Oswald Chambers. This was an itinerant evangelical preacher in the British Empire and he spent his last days on earth trying to minister to soldiers from Australia and New Zealand who were stationed in Egypt at the time right before they were ready to invade the Holy Land of Palestine in 1917. And this particular person, Oswald Chambers, he viewed the enemy at that time, the enemy was considered to be Muslims. And again, if we fast forward today, the major enemy of imperialism is Muslims. And so he considered that enemy to be evil. And that the clear of the one who is on the path, and that the, p the path of the one who is committed to God is clear. The bottom line of all of this the bottom line is in this 200 year history of the intrusion of literal religion into the political policy of imperialism the bottom line is that the circumstances a hundred years ago and the circumstances today are viewed by literal evangelical Christians to be the fulfillment of prophecy to be the fulfillment of all the circumstances that have to occur simultaneously for the second coming of Christ in a sense, it could be said that they are trying to push the hand of God to work in their favor. Nonetheless, it should be said at this point that any empire in history that tried to occupy the Holy Land, especially an empire that was chaperoned by religious symbols and by men of the church, 
any time such an empire went into the Holy Land with the objective of occupation and invasion, that empire went to the Holy Land to be buried. And this happened with the British Empire 100 years ago. And if we look at the events unfolding in our world right now, this is what is happening to the United States right now. And so why are we going over this recent history? Why is this recent history important? Well, the first reason is that those who don't learn the lessons of history are condemned to repeat it. More importantly, this whole notion of the separation of church and state, in practice it doesn't exist. In practice, the separation of church and state is just another tactic, tactic of war. It is employed by the power culture when it has to go out and paint a false image of tolerance and acceptance and inclusion. But it is tossed out the window when the citizenry has to be pumped up in order to support wars of aggression abroad. And the third reason why this, why recounting this history is important is that Islam has always been at war with imperialism. But Islam has never been at war with Christianity. This is an important point for us to realize. It is not a fine point. This point is reiterated all over the place in the Quran. Islam has always been at war with imperialism. Islam has never been at war with Christianity. And one of the evidences of this argument is when the constitution of Medina was offered to the Eastern Orthodox Christians of Najran and the Eastern Orthodox Christians of East Africa and North Africa that this constitution of Medina or the so-called Pax Islamica was accepted by them. And not only was this Pax Islamica accepted, they also accepted and were honored by the security arrangements that belonged to that Pax Islamica. For they were persecuted by their own Christian co-religionists from the north and the west. And so they welcomed a pact with the Muslims where they had the security to remain members of their own faith, to have an autonomous community where they could observe their own religious and secular law. I'm sorry, where, where they could earn, where, where they could observe their own religious and practical law in society without any encumbrance from the central government 
of the Muslims in Medina. However, when this same Pax Islamica was offered to the Christians in the West, because they were dominated by imperialism, because their Christianity was imperialized, as opposed to their imperialism being Christianized, because of that nature of occupation, because of that internal nature of racism, they rejected the offer of the Pax Islamica. And so why was this the case? And this is because Muslims establish relationships with men of God. But Muslims do not establish relationships with men of the church who conveniently happen to be present to bless the mass murder of infidels to rationalize the wars of aggression of imperialism unfortunately this is not something that the vast majority of leaders of the Islamic movement understand and this is something that they need to understand As far as the cause of the Islamic movement, the objective of the leaders of the Islamic movement ought to be to win supporters to the cause. Their approach ought not to be to try and shape that cause so that it is palatable to the power culture of the day. Indeed, Allah Ta'ala says لَتَجِدَنَّ أَشَدَّ النَّاسِ عَدَاوَةً لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا الْيَهُودَ وَالَّذِينَ أَشْرَكُوا وَلَتَجِدَنَّ أَقْرَبَهُمْ مَوَدَّةً لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّا نَصَارَى ذلك بأن منهم قسيسين ورهبانا وأنهم لا يستكبرون. You will most assuredly find that your most implacable enemies are those who try to be rivals in Allah's dominion and in Allah's governance. And the Yahud. In today's world, that means imperialists and Zionists. But at the same time, you will find that those who are closest to you in the matter of affinity are those who say they are Christians. That is because amongst them, there are priests and monks who are not disposed to arrogance. 
اقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروه يغفر لكم فاسترشدوه يرشدكم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله When we go through all of this history even though it was gone through in a very brief and sort of a police report type manner We ought to be cognizant of how not learning from that history applies to our current situation today. As we stand here on an official level, more and more ground troops from NATO countries are being sent to Syria. There have been ground troops there in past years, but it was never officially acknowledged. But now it has been officially acknowledged that NATO ground troops, specifically troops from this country, are being sent into Syria. Again, for the purpose of regime change, But this regime change activity didn't start in 2011. It started over 30 years ago and perhaps even a little bit before that. As we had mentioned earlier in this talk, that 14 centuries ago when Islam emerged as a bona fide power in the peninsula, the imperialists of that time, Byzantium, decided to mobilize its proxy forces in southern Palestine and what is now Jordan. And so in the same way, when the Islamic pulse emerged in Iran in 1979, imperialist proxy forces were mobilized in that entire region. This is a transcendental feature of the emerging power of Islam. It is not going to be easy. It is going to be fraught with difficulties. We are going to feel insecure. We are going to feel as if we are on trial. But it is quite easy to accept that position from your enemy. But it is not easy to accept that position from one of your own. 
For at the time of Allah's Prophet alayhi wa alihi salatu wassalam there were the munafiqs in Medina. And while I am not well, well, and while I'm not going to the extent of characterizing any Islamic movement as a nifaq type movement and nobody should take it that way but they should take this as a sincere nasiha, as a sincere advice, a sincere counsel to the Islamic movement. For one of the proxy armies of imperialism that has been fighting the emergence of Islam in the majority Muslim world, and it pains us to say this, and it is rather regrettable to have to say it in a public fashion. But the leaders of this particular Islamic movement have not only sacrificed the cause, but they've sacrificed themselves. They've lost themselves. And in that regard, they have suffered persecution not only from their own, but they have been abandoned by the imperial allies that they thought were their friends. And I'm not here to take any names, but if you know and you have been following the events and the circumstances in the buildup of the conflict that's been taking place in Syria, you might know which group I'm alluding to. And again, I say this as a sincere counsel. It is not my wish to put down anybody in the Islamic movement. But the Islamic movement needs to be cognizant of the fact that to win supporters to your cause, you do not tailor your cause so as to make it palatable to the power culture of the day. For if you do that, you will lose your cause and you will lose yourselves. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna al-tiba'a wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna al-jtinaba Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat al-ahya'i minhum wal-amwat innaka qareebun sami'un mujibu da'awat اللهم ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت البهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق 
وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولا ذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة Allah, 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 Allah,